APU. American Public University is proud to present the following podcast. Hello, and welcome to this audio podcast here at American Public University. My name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and we're excited to have conversations with faculty here in the School of Arts and Humanities. So today, we're going to be talking about Labor Day, religion, and American prosperity with Professor Rob King. So welcome, Rob. Thank you very much, uh, Jordan. I appreciate the opportunity to share uh, a little bit of my research from a few years ago through a National Endowment for Humanity study, but also research that I've continued into new directions of labor history and the extensions of labor history. Excellent. That was a very interesting topic. So the first question I have for you is, how did the 1891 Catholic Papal Encyclical Rerum Novarum by Pope Leopold VIII chart a middle course between communism and socialism on one side and usury, rapacious industrial capitalism, and state-supported functional monopolies on the other side. In addition, why were Catholic voices largely silent in response to the Palmen Railroad strike of 1894? Thank you. Excellent question. Pope Leo XIII was a very unique, monumental figure, very much analogous to Pope John Paul II. He was really the first modern pope, if you will, who was confronted with the birth and expansion of modern industrialization, and the acquisition of capital in a way that had been unknown throughout the Middle Ages in the feudal system and even in the Renaissance. So he had to come up with a response that charted a middle course between a growing voice for economic justice that was more aligned to a Marxist critique, so various forms of socialism or communism. The Russian Bolshevik Revolution had not happened yet, but there were those growing voices within Europe, so he had to address that. But then he also had to address completely inhumane industrial conditions, child labor, you know, working you know, 12, 14 hours per day, very little wage stability, especially as workers came from Europe to the United States and where they had at least some protection by labor guilds, medieval craftsmen's guilds in, in Europe. They, they did not have that in the United States. So being the first modern pope, he had to address the issues that were not just germane to Europe, but throughout the world. So I'm going to read one quick quotation by Pope Leo XIII that sort of paints the picture of what he was trying to accomplish. He said to remedy these wrongs, the socialists working on the poor man's envy of the rich are striving to do away with private property, uh, Marx and Engels, and contend that individual possession should become the common property of all to be administered by the state or by municipal bodies. They hold that thus transferring property from private individuals to the community, the present mischievous state of things will be set right, as much as each citizen will then get his fair share of whatever there is to enjoy but their contentions are so clearly powerless to end the controversy that they were carried into effect, that if they were carried into effect, the working man himself would be among the first to suffer. They are moreover emphatically unjust for they would rob the lawful possessor, distort the functions of the state and create utter confusion in the community. So penned in 1891, this was extremely prophetic because uh, as we're seeing right now in contemporary news headlines in Venezuela, that the impulse to, right previous wrongs, if orchestrated in a certain way, would actually, ironically enough, uh, hurt the very workers and industrial class that they're set out to assist. So, you know, we've seen this play out 
through over a century, almost a century and a half, of various misappropriations of this idealist, utopic community that, when put in practice, is not pure and, and, and ends up causing a lot of confusion. So when applied to Pullman, why were the Catholic voices largely silent in response to the Pullman Railroad strike? I think that the bishops at the time, although they were extremely in favor of the working class, labor unions, especially as uh, Catholicism in the United States was largely an immigrant population, uh, especially Irish, Italians, etc., they were nervous about a certain ideological interpretation of that that would be more socialist or Marxist, but also uh, the, the threat of, of violence. There was uh, an earlier Haymarket massacre where it looked like there was going to be a peaceful labor gathering, and this happened uh, just before the Pullman Railroad strike. But then dynamite was taken uh, and uh, ended up creating bloodshed, and it ended up leaving really a bad taste in everyone's mouth in, you know, in Chicago. But then when you mix local concerns about violence in Chicago with the overarching papal emphasis on charting a middle course, it really puts the bishops and local priests in kind of a tough position. How do you navigate rampant exploitation of workers on one side, but then a violent anarchist or Marxist solution on the other side? So in response, they, they really just stayed silent. So they, I think they really didn't know exactly what to say other than not really say the wrong thing. Excellent. Thank you, Rob. I think one thing that a lot of people today don't realize is just the huge social upheaval that occurred in the 19th century. We think about all the changes that occur today with technology and cars and airplanes, but in the 19th century, rapid industrialization truly changed the face of countries in Europe where the industrialization really spread throughout. And so when we talk about all this and the Catholic response, it's very interesting. And it's one of those things where I wish more people knew more about to understand what's going on today. Great. Excellent. That's exactly right. And the rapid technological shifts ended up producing the very problems that the technology was first designed to solve. So with the advent of the railroad system in the United States that made the opportunity for the United States to rise a world power, truly world power, because we had such agricultural might coming from the Midwest. We could ship our grain, our food products out of the lower cost, and I won't say a low cost, but a lower cost than what was previously known, and feed the entire nation. And interestingly enough, everything did pass through Chicago, given its central location. But then as that technology developed and spread, it very quickly, uh, within the span of 50 years, started to become obsolete. So what's interesting about Pullman is that the palace cars that were designed by Pullman, they were really the BMWs or Mercedes of railroad cars, you know, very intricate woodworking. So you needed the craftsmen who were very top-tier woodworkers to come and, and create these. But then they weren't necessarily the safest locomotive cars, and so very rapidly they declined, and then you, they were replaced by steel sleeper cars, which were really the proto-version of what we know of as uh, Amtrak cars. And even to this day, if you ride in an Amtrak car and you have like the pull-down sleeper bed, it's literally called a Pullman bed. And so within the span of less than 50 years, what was once a very high-demand, top-tier product soon became absolutely obsolete, and that was what actually caused the railroad strike itself, because when the demand plummeted for the wooden palace cars, there was all this outlay in infrastructure. Um, it was a company town formed just outside of Chicago proper, 
and the workers had to still pay their rent back to the company since they lived in the company town, but then suddenly they were doing so with only one-third of their normal wages. So that's what led to the utter explosion in the labor strike itself. So it, it is interesting how technology that is designed to better the human condition can then set up scenarios in which that very technology becomes obsolete and creates new social problems. So yes, it's very interesting. And, you know, we're reliving that right now um, with the birth of uh, uh, internet technologies and how that shifts and creates uh, new problems. You know, cyber warfare, what happens when you know, we can get attacked to the nation state and, you know, suddenly our water and our electrical systems could be at jeopardy by cyber attacks. So, yes, it's very striking, uh, the rapid shift in technology and how that creates monumental social change, uh, especially uh, in this study, and then uh, uh, we can apply it to our, our current conditions. Oh, for sure. I could even think of AI and how computers will start driving our cars and our trucks and our, I mean, they already fly the airplanes for the most part. <laughs> but what will happen to all the drivers who drive the freight trucks around? There's going to be thousands of people that in 10, 15, or maybe 20 years that won't have a job anymore. And there's just so much changing over the next 10, 20 years that we could look back at the past for at least mile markers on how we could potentially respond. And uh, today we're talking to Professor Rob King, Labor Day, Religion, and American Prosperity, and we're going to take a quick break. Technology has created huge job growth in the fields of supply chain management and reverse logistics. With a degree from American Public University, you'll have the knowledge you need to help your company expand and to help improve its profits. Take the first step to prepare for a career in transportation and logistics management. Apply today at study at apu.com. And we're back here at American Public University System, and we're talking to Professor uh, Rob King, Labor Day Religion and American Prosperity. So our next question for you, Rob, is what were the most pressing economic issues that led to the Pullman railroad strike? For example, how did technology change to render the Pullman cars obsolete? How did the European Craftsman Guild shape the worldview of Pullman's immigrants and skilled laborers? You covered this a little, but I'd like to go into a little more detail. Great. Uh, thank you very much, Sharon. Um, this is an exciting line of analysis. and something that I did touch on previously and just to expand a little bit, the craftsmen guilds themselves, I'll, I'll start with them. Much of this is linked to the birth of Renaissance city-states that created a bourgeois, a good characterization of the word bourgeois, middle class that had previously never existed in Europe. And so the medieval craftsmen's guilds were centered on any type of skill that was in high enough demand that uh, laborers could work together and say, this is the standard that we're going to abide by or the set of standards that we're going to abide by. And then they could self-regulate. So I think a good modern example of this would be something like having to pass the bar exam to practice law, that there was the ability to set one's own wages, to do internal uh, you know, reinforcement of what those standards might be. But one of the problems was, as labor shifted, opportunities seemed to be more evident in the United States that as European workers would come to the United States, out of a different mindset, a different set of labor associations, they went from having the guild structure to really having no labor protection at all. And so that created 
some interesting later historical developments. I think that the growth of the labor movement in the United States in the 20th century was largely as a reaction to replace what had previously been a very viable guild system. But then in the United States, given our unique founding in the 1700s, it, it also alighted the U.S. founders as instantiating some European craftsman guild-like traits with a completely new setting that was really undefined at that time. And so I think one great example, most people know that many of the founders of the United States had belonged to the Freemasons Guild. So what you know, Freemasons, you know, they were stone workers. Um, and so much of the United States has had that influence. But what was interesting, you really want to know the history of local demographic area going to cemeteries to see what were the major concerns of, of that time. So in Chicago, we looked at where many of the labor leaders were buried. And uh, interestingly enough, many of the labor leaders at that time were actually members of the Freemasons. So that's you know, known now more as like a fraternal society, not necessarily linked to a craftsman guild, but the original derivation of it actually did come out of the medieval guild system. So that's a real quick overview of that. I would say that linked to that discussion, we'd already talked about the shifts in technology and how the more modern industrialized steel sleeper cars that those replaced the wooden hand-carved cars, that I already talked about. But one thing that I think more recently that was in effect, but probably not as rapidly as we experience now is uh, everyone knows if you're into IT or computer programming that there's something called Moore's Law, that a computer will be obsolete within 18 months, you know, or your cell phone will be obsolete within 18 months. And what many people don't see about Moore's Law, which I think was working at that time in a, in a different way, not quite as rapid, obviously, was that built into each technological advancement were the seeds of that technological advancement's own obsolescence. So it's not like Apple has been accused of, you know, maybe changing their phones around so that you have to buy, you know, uh, a new iPhone, you know, that, you know, sort of planned obsolescence. You know, obviously that's not very ethical. I mean, I don't know if those critiques are correct or not, but that's something that's discussed. But I think the key point is that as technology develops, that there's going to be a new wave of technology. Uh, Jordan, you mentioned AI and you know, self-driving cars. And, uh, you know, we definitely saw that in play in Pullman, that as railroads became more efficient, they became less of a luxury, more of a means of mass production, mass transport, then that would then give the seeds for, say, maybe not directly, but later on, you know, the development of the automobile, the development of the airplane, even the means of efficient production, that it's no longer people working in a woodworking shop, but how do you have steel production and everything that drove the development of the railroads would then later on just be applied directly to uh, car manufacturing, airplane manufacturing, everything. So everything was set in place to then replace the railroads, but the railroads were the first real major transportation industrial machine, if you will, that later on made itself obsolete without really necessarily intending to do that. And that's just, I think, just sort of natural causation that as technology develops, it's going to render itself obsolete just because each new advance will then produce something new that you know, will replace the old. So I think that that's what was definitely happening, something like Moore's Law, but at slightly slower pace uh, back in uh, 1894. 
Definitely. There's so many wonderful examples from history, of course, where we could look at it and research today to see or try to prepare for tomorrow. And an interesting question I find is, how were ethnic classifications used to manipulate, control, divide, and ultimately exploit non-Native workers at Pullman? Pretty tough question. Yes, this was really shocking and interesting and fascinating, especially as someone trained in the liberal arts, to look at maybe some of the more soft factors. Okay, so we mentioned technological shifts, economic shifts, supply-demand shifts. But this was really interesting because as an immigrant nation, the United States, within just 100 years, there became what, say, second, third generation, those who were previously immigrants now became nativist, uh, that there was a real push for maintaining America for Americans. And so within the handwritten archives uh, of Pullman, much of the Pullman archives, by the way, were destroyed intentionally by the company. They didn't want to see what was happening. Uh, there were double books. There's the accounting books shown to the public, and then there's the internal accounting books. But from what did survive, it's just handwritten notes that managers had to describe different ethnicities who were working at Pullman. We can see a real emphasis upon both nativism, but also a preference for Northern European identity. But then if a labor force can be divided along ethnic lines, you know, they could be set against each other and more easily controlled. And that's exactly what the Pullman managers were doing by intent. And so let me just read a, a few of these and you'll see they're just one or two line snippets of each ethnicity. And then uh, I'll give a kind of a demographic spread of how many of those workers were actually in Pullman. So those classified as American, there was uh, 1,738 quote unquote Americans identified as quote unquote good and versatile workmen and of superior executive ability. So that's going to be your management class. Interestingly enough, a historical figure who grew out of Pullman was actually the anti-mobster lawman, Elliot Ness. He grew up within Pullman, and as a child, that shaped his, I don't know how much it shaped his full career, but it, it did shape his worldview, his, his perspective, that he was destined to be someone, but didn't know exactly what was going to happen until later in history. The next one listed is a Scandinavian, so Sweden, Norway, Denmark. There was 1,137 quote-unquote Scandinavians. Good workmen, good citizens, frugal, industrious, and as a rule, religious. So, you know, largely Lutheran, so very quiet and industrious. British, there is 685 British, which would include England, Scotland, Wales, and Canada. Intelligent, industrious, progressive, and desirable citizens. Okay, sounds good so far. Uh, <laughs> German, 620, that would include Germany and Austria. Industrious and good citizens. Okay, now when you go into some other ethnicities, we can start to see, okay, well, they're starting to, to shift the analysis. So Dutch, 557, better at labor here than as mechanics, our best laborers. The Dutch had an interesting history due to the reformed Protestant heritage. There was an emphasis upon not joining uh, secret societies, quote unquote, and therefore any labor union, the Dutch were not allowed to join. So that in and of itself kind of put them at a bit of a disadvantage. So they're better at labor than they are at doing anything that is higher than that. So very interesting characterization of the Dutch. Now, the Irish, this is very interesting, especially later political history. 318 Irish were there. Um, <laughs> I kind of have to laugh because I'm from an Irish background and I grew up in the heart of Irish Catholicism in, in St. Petersburg, Florida. There's never a desirable element here. 
we may have been unfortunate over allotment. They control all politics here, as in Chicago, which was fascinating because the very first Irish mayor of Chicago actually came from none other than Pullman. And so I often pose a, an interesting question, you know, when I've taught this before, say, at McDill Air Force Base or whenever I've been asked to teach something that overlaps with Pullman, I'll say, okay, which U.S. president was shaped the most by the experience at Pullman? And everyone's thinking more historically, et cetera, et cetera. And then usually one or two students will say, well, wait, um, wasn't Barack Obama from <laughs> Chicago? I go, you got it. Barack Obama <laughs> was actually a community organizer in Roseland, which borders Pullman. You just go straight under the subway and you're in another neighborhood. And that's exactly where Barack Obama was a community organizer. So it's really interesting. You have this whole history of Chicago labor history, different racial divisions, racial tension. The labor unions at the time were actually segregationist. So uh, African-Americans had an entirely different uh, labor union structure, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Uh, that was the most prominent of the African-American unions. So the Pullman management, they saw, okay, one way to control their labor force was to divide and conquer. And so they um, used um, different ethnic groups to basically be put against each other with an American slash Northern European executive class uh, on top of that. So, so yeah, quite interesting question and um, interesting answer that has played out you know, over the next uh, you know, 130 years afterwards. And those are all really fascinating. Maybe you can help me with my memory. <laughs> uh, there's okay. a 1896, I think, Supreme Court decision uh, in which a separate but equal became essentially standard. And I apologize, I can't remember. But, you know, it took uh, about a generation after the Civil War of um, this and that for separate and equal. And, you know, when we look at back at these comments of obviously as as Americans today, we cringe, but that's how it was back then. Yes, absolutely. We don't realize how nativist the mindset was in the late 1800s. And the Irish, are, I think, especially are to be studied and noted because the Irish potato famine brought so many Irish here in mass very quickly who were literally escaping starvation. So there was, oh gosh, political cartoons um, that portray, you know, hordes of Irish, you know, swimming across the Atlantic. And then those papists, you know, <laughs> so with the Pope and Bishop in hand, you know, <laughs> invading America. So there definitely was that nativist anti-immigrant sentiment at the time. And then Chicago is also very interesting in terms of African-American racial history in that to escape Jim Crow segregation that was absolutely brutal in the South, Chicago really became a place of refuge where eventually, especially after the Pullman Railroad strike, since African-Americans had their own labor unions in place, they were able to oftentimes take the jobs that had previously been left by the strikers or replaced by quote-unquote scabs, that the African-Americans took those jobs and really created a very prosperous, powerful um, community within Chicago that was a direct result of this uh, labor strike. Yeah, and, and I just double-checked myself. It was 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson. Where that's separate, right. I, I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, I was too in my head, and I was, I was second-guessing. <laughs> and it, that's where separate but equal was upheld. It wasn't until the 1865 Civil Rights Act, which then said, no, <laughs> finally, on a national level, separate but equal is, is not equal. So it's took a full generation after the Civil War for institutional racism to be back on the books, and then it took, oh gosh, three generations for it then to uh, be taken off the books. 
you know, when we look at our history, it takes a long time and it's difficult. It's honestly hard to read. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Yeah, you just have to bite your cheek and go, okay, well, that was the view at the time. And then how do we learn from those mistakes, those ideological lenses? How can we remove them? And also, how can we see whatever the ideological lenses is that we might have? And yeah, yeah that's humanistic part of studying the liberal arts and the humanities. And yeah, that's something that yeah, I'm glad we're able to yeah, look up from a study like this. Excellent. And uh, for the final comment... This is great information. For some students, this might seem like 100-year-old history. How do you relate this to what students are doing today? How do you relate it to the study of religion and the labor movement? Because you look at today, there's a lot of talk about religion. There's a lot of talk about labor every day in the news. So it doesn't go away. That's an excellent question, Jordan. I think that whatever is most pressing in contemporary headlines, and so that's always going to be changing. Uh, I had taught this Hill Air Force Base 2011-2012, uh, right when the Occupy Wall Street movement was happening. And so I gave a version of this as a presentation, a keynote presentation at Barry University, Dominican Catholic University in Miami, right after and while the Occupy Wall Street was happening. And so I thought, okay, within that setting, I tied it into the whole student loan debt crisis, and I tried to make it relevant, and you know, especially teaching a bunch of undergraduate students. Sometimes they were you know, working adults and they were worried about their student loan debts and you know, whether or not to go for a degree program or not. That was a definite tie-in. So the key would be whenever one is presenting this, find you know, the most important economic and or religious set of news items that are happening right now. So you know, right now it's a little bit quieter than at, at that time, but you know, there's still some tie-in. I think you know what's happening in Venezuela, I think... Um, Domestically, maybe not quite as much of a direct tie-in, but I think however we can make it relevant based upon whatever is happening in the world and national events right now, uh, then students really seem to get engaged uh, much more deeply, and it really matters for them. Uh, but yeah, back in 2011-12, when I was first studying and presenting this, it was definitely the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement and uh, yeah, concern over student loan uh, debt. Yeah, that was a good time at that point. Excellent. I completely agree. So, well, thank you, Professor Rob King, for a great conversation today. Thank you. This is so exciting. And uh, Jordan, thank you for the opportunity to speak. And this is really exciting uh, uh, to be a part of the American Public University System, just see, seeing what an impact we can make as uh, liberal arts and humanities scholars uh, to better the human condition and yeah, uh, add to our national and international security. Excellent. Thank you. And today we talked to Professor Rob King, Labor Day, Religion, and American Prosperity. And again, today you are at American Public University System, Conversations with Faculty here in the School of Arts and Humanities. And again, thank you, Rob. Great conversation. Thank you very much. For more information about our university, visit us at study at APU.com. APU. American Public University.